We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hi everybody, I'm Priscilla. And I'm Elise. Welcome to Novel Feelings, where we discuss representations of mental health issues in fiction novels. And today we are very happy to be reviewing Picture Us in the Light by Callie Lloyd Gilbert. And we are joined by a very special guest, Wendy Chen. Hey, Wendy. Hi, so I'm Wendy, and I'm also a book blogger, and I'm also a part of a collective called Lit Celebration, which aims to uplift Asian voices in literature. I'm also a writer for Australian readers. You might know of the anthology Meet Me at the Intersection. I'm really excited to be on this podcast excited to be discussing this book with full spoilers and everything (laughs) i would just say that i really recommend meet me at the intersection anthology as a whole but i really enjoyed wendy's piece as well and how did you two first meet each other or get in contact with each other um twitter (laughs) i think it was twitter (laughs) i think so like you participated in the asian lit chat for like 2017 right that was a long yeah. time ago. Yeah, back when Twitter chats were a big thing, I think, in the book community. I joined the one that Lit Celebration held. And then I think we just started chatting from there and followed each other on uh, Instagrams and things like that. At the time of recording this, we like met like two days ago in person. So that was pretty exciting. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, so... We're really excited to have Wendy here and to discuss this book. But before we get started, I'll just give a couple of quick disclaimers. So first of all, please note that we are a spoiler podcast, so we will be going in depth into what happens in Picture Us in the Light. We also note that this podcast should not be taken as therapeutic advice. And finally, we're speaking today as psychologists and or book lovers and not necessarily from lived experience of the mental health issues that are being covered. Our voices are limited in this way. But we will draw on personal experiences where we can and we will include some more information about these issues, including writing and perspectives from people with lived experience at the end of this episode and in our blog. Yeah. And to tell you a little bit about the author, Kelly Lloyd Gilbert believes deeply in the power of stories to illuminate a shared humanity and give voice to complex broken people. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Her works include Conviction, published in 2015, Picture Us in the Light, 2018, and most recently in 2021, When We Were Infinite. Have either of you read any of her other works? Yeah, I read When We Were Infinite, so I think I'll talk about that and in terms of recommendations. Okay, interesting. I've seen that going around Bookstagram a bit, but haven't um, dived into that one yet, so keen to hear your thoughts on it. (laughs) All right, so I'll just dive into our summary. So Danny Cheng has always known his parents have secrets, but when he discovers a taped up box in his father's closet filled with old letters and a file on a powerful Silicon Valley family, he realizes there's much more to his family's past than he ever imagined. Danny has been an artist for as long as he can remember, and it seems his path is set. With a scholarship to the Rhode Island School of Design and his family's blessing to pursue the career he's always dreamed of. Still, contemplating a future without his best friend, Harry Wong, by his side makes Danny feel a panic he can barely put into words. Harry and Danny's lives are deeply intertwined, 
and as they approach the one-year anniversary of a tragedy that shook their friend group to its core, Danny can't stop asking himself if Harry is truly in love with his girlfriend, Regina Chan. When Danny digs deeper into his parents' past, he uncovers a secret that disturbs the foundations of his family history and the carefully constructed facade his parents have maintained begins to crumble. With everything he loves in danger of being stripped away, Danny must face the ghosts of the past in order to build a future that belongs to him. Mm-hmm. Intriguing. So we chose this book originally because of Wendy's recommendation, actually. Elisa and I then discussed it and we decided to you know, include it in season two. And it's been on our radars pretty much since you mentioned it to me, Wendy. I was saying to Elise, look, this sounds really cool. Let's just check it out, maybe. And here we are. Here we are. (laughs) Yeah. um, One thing that's kind of interesting is that, um, like, I heard about this book through the online book blogging community, but it was actually reading the author's answers in an interview that, like, motivated me to go online and just, like, order it straight away. There's basically, like, two things she said which really resonated with me. One, she said she drew on her experiences in a majority Asian community in the San Francisco Bay Area because she hadn't seen that represented up to that point. And the second thing, when, when she talked about intersectionality, about Asian and mental health representation. And yeah, my overriding thought the first time I read the book was that, okay, if I'd read this as a teenager, it would have meant like so much to me, like it does now, but I wish I'd had it when I was younger. So yeah, those were um, my reasons for recommending it. Yeah, that's awesome. It is rare that we see Asians as a majority in a community. A lot of the YA books I've read, at least, have focused on the experience of being a minority and dealing with all the discrimination or the feelings that come with that. And we still see a little bit of that with Danny, especially with Mr. X, that he still feels, you know, when he steps out of that community, he's very aware of what's the best word for it being different i suppose but that's not the overriding theme of the book in addition to that we are covering quite a few mental health issues today and they include depression anxiety panic attacks suicide and grief in particular their response to suicide in a school community we are also covering themes such as child trafficking racism conflict with parents the diasporic experience and transracial adoption as well. It's a lot of big themes. <laughs> yeah. There is a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> and now we will start our recap and detailed discussion. So the story starts with the prologue. And in this prologue, we meet Daniel Cheng, an 18-year-old student and artist from Cupertino, California. So Danny's father works in a research lab and conducts his own secret experiments on quantum entanglements, or the theory that atoms which have closely interacted with one another will keep behaving as though they're still connected after they've been separated. He investigates how this phenomenon operates when it comes to relationships between human beings. When Danny's father demonstrates his experiment using Danny and his mother as subjects, Danny's mother becomes very upset, inexplicably demanding that he stop his research. Yeah, one thought I had from looking back on the scene after reading the book is that it's like an interesting reflection of the overall emphasis on the book of all these connections people have and how they have devastating impacts on each other. Yeah, I thought that was such a powerful opening scene. And I sort of went and Googled if this is a real thing as well. Did you find anything out? Is it real? It is real. Quantum entanglements is a real scientific idea. I think that's the word for it. 
That's so interesting. Yeah. There was a part of that opening chapter where Danny's dad ran the experiment on his mom and Danny. And Danny was sitting there like, please love me. Please think about me. And I thought that was really touching. Definitely. So then we learn more about Danny's family. To set the scene, Danny's parents are first-generation Chinese immigrants. Um, They first settled in Austin, Texas, where Danny was born, and then moved to Cupertino. Uh, When he was five, Danny accidentally learned that his parents had a baby daughter before leaving China. And when he first asked about them, his shocked mother told him his older sister had died. Uh, Then his mother had a panic attack, and they refused to give him more information. But Danny still thinks about her regularly. Mm. So near the start of the book, Danny receives a letter confirming he's been offered a scholarship to the Rhode Island School of Design. RISD, I think, is the way they read it in the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Danny's parents are thrilled and supportive of his chosen pathway as an artist, which is really refreshing. Usually when it's when a book features an Asian family, there's always that battle between the child's dream career and the parents' wish for stability. So the fact that it's not here is really nice to see. Um, However, Danny has mixed feelings. He has artist block and lacks motivation and inspiration to draw. He also keeps thinking about Mixture X. When Danny was a small boy in Austin, he was interrupted while drawing with chalk on the sidewalk by a white neighbor who made racist comments towards him. Mortified by this, Danny kept the incident to himself, but he often thinks of this man whom he calls Mr. X, who also regularly embodies his self-doubts. Yeah, this Mr. X character is kind of like a manifestation of all the negative thoughts that Danny has about himself. So when he starts going into those negative thought spirals, he sort of says to himself, like, it's Mr. X talking again, picturing Mr. X and imagining him saying these things. And this might be a little bit of a tangent, although hopefully relevant, but this did remind me a lot of a technique that's used in acceptance and commitment therapy, a diffusion technique. For some people, it can be really helpful to name their thought processes and the themes that might be coming up through their thoughts as a character. So I would always give the example if you're having, say, perfectionistic thoughts, thoughts about not being good enough or in in a kind of academic context to imagine that as being like Hermione Granger talking in your mind and saying, you know, it has to be better, you have to get the perfect score, etc. So in this case, it's almost like Danny's accidentally using this technique, but I don't know if it's being particularly helpful for him. It's just an interesting parallel. Yeah, um, I was thinking about that too, actually, as I was reading. Um, I wonder if it's not helpful for Danny to name his negative thoughts in this way, because in this case, it's all caught up in racism mm. and Danny's sense of belonging as well. This is skipping ahead a little bit, but he realizes towards the end of the book that the reason he struggles to capture Mr. X's menace when he's drawing Mr. X is because he kept drawing Mr. X to look really mean when really this neighbor is elderly and frail looking and just like an ordinary old man. So I guess for Danny and, you know, anyone around him can say or think that he doesn't belong or isn't good enough. And that's not just in his mind, I suppose, because the racism that he experiences really out there 
And that's hard to talk back to, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just had one thought about how we're saying we don't see that many stories set in a majority Asian community. And I think maybe some people have like an idealized idea of how, oh, you're like protected from racism, but you still get like microaggressions and things like that can still affect you. Yeah, absolutely. I think Danny even said that his experience with Mr. X was that shocking to him because Prior to that, he was in a quite accepting environment in Texas, and he had expected that Mr. X would smile at him and compliment him on his chalk drawing, and that the fact that what happened was the complete opposite was such a shock to the system in that way. I think it underlines too how these quote-unquote small instances can sit with you for the rest of your life as well. The things that people say to us as children can really like strongly impact how we think about ourselves and how we perceive the world down the track. Yeah, absolutely. Danny is also worried about his friendships and his school. He has been friends with Regina Chan since kindergarten. She embodies the overachieving Cupertino kid, but her ambition is to become a journalist, not a lawyer as her parents expect. We also meet Harry Wong, Regina's boyfriend, Like her and seemingly every student at their school, he feels the pressure to excel. And for him, that means getting accepted at Princeton. Harry is very accomplished and popular. And at first, Danny didn't like Harry very much, believing Harry to be fake. However, once he got to know him, Danny can't imagine life without Harry. It becomes clear through the story that Danny sees Harry as more than a friend, spends a huge amount of the book wondering if Harry feels the same way about him. They're so sweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, the ship is the ship is strong with these two. I know. <laughs> yeah. Or oh, they're like angsty longing as well. <laughs> I know, yeah. It's it's the best, isn't it? The angsty longing. <laughs> oh, the eye contact and the like accidental touching and all that. Oh. Yeah. Very cute. The the little moments where it could be more, but it doesn't become more. (laughs) Yeah, I did think it was an interesting contrast that Danny's parents were very supportive of him pursuing a creative career, but his best friends, Regina and Harry, feel very pressured to be in more academic or lucrative areas too. This was like one of my favorite aspects of the book, was explores those specifics of an Asian majority community. And yeah, like I grew up in an era of Sydney that was like specifically Chinese dominant. And in like New South Wales, there's like a lot of selective schools which can be Asian dominant as well. It's probably not to the same extent as like Silicon Valley in the US, but I could relate to that environment. It was refreshing, but then Danny also realizes it's not the same for everyone. Danny himself was still affected by the pressures in the Cupertino community, in spite of his parents being relaxed. Like there's a quote where he says, we all felt it, the relentless crush of expectation, the fear of not measuring up. Even me and I like it here. And as Asian parents go, mine are about as chill as they come. Yeah, there was that scene at um, Yosemite when they were at a camp and like Harry, who's like seems to be perfect on the outside, expressed how tired he was of this as well. I thought it just showed like how authentic the experiences the author was drawing from was, that she really knew that environment well. And it brings up kind of like systemic issues as well. At the end of the day, it's less about like cultural familial pressures, but more like a reflection of our education system and like all the inequalities and flaws in it. And so this is something more 
or the associated with U.S. discourse, the whole model minority myth about Asians being constantly academically high achieving, like that's damaging for a variety of reasons. And yeah, how that myth can be damaging um, because of how it's used against other racial ethnic groups, but also for the people in that community. Yeah, and the model minority myth is only applied to part of like like sort of the East Asians part of Asia. I feel it erases everyone else as well. And it does become a problem when you think about the children in the communities who don't live up to that expectations. Growing up in Indonesia, obviously I was growing up in Asia, so that was not as apparent perhaps. But as was coming to Australia and being one of the few Asians in the international student cohort who actually wanted to do history and was interested in art subjects and not at all in the maths or biology or chemistry was quite an interesting experience. So one morning, Danny accidentally finds a taped up box in a closet at home. Inside is a pile of papers, including printouts of public records and Google images detailing the life of a white, wealthy Silicon Valley businessman named Clay Ballard. There are also drawings that Danny recognises of his sister. When Danny asks his father about it, he becomes furious and refuses to discuss the matter. We see that Danny's father suffers occasional bouts of depression, which Danny attributes to his sister's death. When his father is sad, as his mother describes it, Danny's survivor guilt escalates. In his words, Danny worries that maybe I would never be enough to make up for what they'd lost, that I wasn't supposed to be the one who'd lived. Mm. So brutal. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So horrible. I feel like this survivor guilt is wrapped up in the pressure that a lot of children of immigrants feel, that pressure to make the most of your life and succeed because you're so acutely aware of the sacrifices that your parents have made for you. Like Danny's parents left everything, like their whole families, possible careers. I think his mom actually wanted to own a hotel one day and doesn't seem to be working in that field at all. So she's given up her dream to help Danny's father achieve his. Um, yeah, it's just, it's it's a lot to, when you think about it, it's a lot to put on your children. And the parents aren't really like very open with their emotions about this as well. So Danny's left to kind of bottle up a lot of these thoughts and make a lot of assumptions because whenever he has tried to ask or to get answers from his parents as well they're very much not wanting to talk about it and that leaves him to assume the worst a lot of the time too Mm. Mm. that whole generational impact is interesting because there are some things that are brought up which seems like yeah would be common to a lot of children of immigrants like um about like loss of language and culture yeah like there are specific reasons why danny's parents have chosen to cut ties, I suppose, with their with their roots. But you're right. A lot of immigrants make those choices around maybe not speaking their native language to their children so that their children can pick up English more easily, perhaps, in order to fit in better. I think like maybe in the past, there was more of a societal emphasis on like, oh, if you teach your kids two languages and they'll get confused mm-hmm. and trying to like living up to the modern minority as we said before and giving up a lot for that and then realizing like oh like just because we act a certain way doesn't mean we can overcome racism the other thing i would note about this is 
there's not a lot of language to, to talk about mental health issues, I feel, in the family. His mom describes his dad's depression as sad. And Danny names his mother's panic attacks as panic attacks, but they don't talk about therapy, for example. That's never mentioned at all. Yeah, there's a point, I think, where... They're talking about Danny's mother taking Danny's father to go see a doctor and I think the doctor recommended medication and possibly therapy as well, but his Mm. father didn't want to pursue that or chose not to pursue that, which is understandable, but his father was very clearly struggling and the, the family are not knowing how to support him within the house too. Yeah. Everybody's just kind of on tiptoes around him, not really sure what to do. You get a sense that they've sort of come to understand how to support Danny's mother when she is experiencing high levels of anxiety, when she is experiencing panic attacks, but still really struggling when father's experiencing those episodes of depression. And I think anxiety is often a lot more visible, whereas depression can be difficult to respond to because it just looks like that withdrawal and you don't know how to reach someone whereas it might be a lot easier to learn how to calm someone down if that makes sense so we know from early in the book that an incident happened last year which shocked the school and eventually we learned that one of Daphne's classmates Sandra died from suicide and she was the one who was Regina's best friend so Sandra was once close with Danny too but then their friendship had soured and Danny feels really guilty about this he also feels guilty because he rigged a student election that Harry could win over Sandra and Sandra was also feeling highly pressured from her parents before her death yeah this section <laughs> I had a conversation with you Elise that I was really confused at the beginning when they were they kept referring to you know, something that happened last year that incident and I was like what what did I miss um and I'll, yeah I remember you were like no no you didn't miss anything just keep going <laughs> I was confused as well at the start I'm like did I did I just miss a line somewhere but no it was only um I think just under halfway through the book when it's actually revealed what happened to Sandra we learned about her a little bit from flashbacks but um yeah unless you're good at putting together clues you might not have gathered that from the start but oh, what an emotional impact that is when we do find out what happened. Um, I know. Like you sort of pick up bits and pieces about what may have led Sandra to feel that she needed to take her own life. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, Priscilla, the, the pressure from her parents, feeling that she wasn't good enough, as well as this sense of maybe feeling a bit isolated from some of her peers as well. But we only get Danny's perspective, so we can't exactly step into her mind about this. But what we do see more clearly is the impact on the community, which we'll go into in a moment. Yeah. The school responded to Sandra's death in several ways, including bringing in counsellors. Danny and his friends fear future suicides and always respond to each other's texts or calls as soon as possible so everyone knows that they are okay. The school doesn't allow students to publicly display their grief for fear of copycat suicides, but Regina defiantly resolves to acknowledge the first anniversary of Sandra's death. She wants to publish a tribute to Sandra in the school paper with a portrait drawn by Danny. So we thought it would be helpful to spend um, a few minutes talking about how schools might handle suicides that happen within the community. Um, And we will be speaking more in the Australian context and the international context. So, of course, keep in mind this might not apply in different countries. 
I had a chat to a friend who works as a student support services officer. So this service sits inside the Department of Education in Victoria. And she told me that the Department of Education has a handbook for schools called Managing Trauma, a guide to managing trauma following an incident. This is easily accessible. I found it just by Googling. I will link to this in our blog post. But to summarize things, the department's approach goes something like this. When a suicide happens, the school speaks to the parents of the student and get the parents' consent about what information can go out to the community. Then the school write a letter to parents of the other students about what's happened with absolutely no details about the methods and only with the information that the family has consented to. The school, supported by the SSSS, create circles of concern. So they basically work out which students will be most affected by the suicide to those least affected. Then they break the news in small groups in order to create a safe space and and provide one-to-one support to those students who are most affected by the suicide. They try to encourage connectedness, hope, and provide the students with a sense of control or agency, Um, for example, by talking about how these students might want to say goodbye. There's Also, usually a conversation about how the suicide might upset or affect some people in the school community, and students are discouraged from discussing the suicide in public. I was told that it is not advisable at all for schools to break the news in big groups. So you don't do that in a classroom or in in an assembly, for example. Uh, And so that's what happened in this book. So Danny and his friends found out from their classroom teacher. Yeah, so the reason that it's not advisable to break the news in big groups is that the students might go into a pack mentality of sort and do something rash in response to the suicide. Yeah, it seems like what Danny's school did definitely shared some similarities with what would be recommended in, well, in our context, in the context that we work Mm. in. So, for example, providing support and discouraging Mm tributes and I think not disclosing the methods as well I don't was it was the method of her suicide mentioned in the story I can't recall it was mentioned later on Danny said they later found out but they didn't say how so it might not have been from the school yeah yeah Mm. interesting yeah um this friend also said that it's correct that tributes are not allowed because they worry that it may come across as romanticizing the suicide, Mm. which I think becomes sort of a discussion point or point of tension between Regina and the school. For sure. And Mm. I'm guessing that tributes is sort of different to like a a memorial service or um, a sort of a grieving process that might happen after Mm. a person's death more like what's happening in this sense like a you know a year anniversary tribute yeah Yeah, okay yeah so I think things like that school newspaper tribute that Regina did um putting flowers at the lockers that sort of thing are um gray areas I suppose the school might prefer for that not to happen and the students are more encouraged to say goodbye in private ways. Mm. 
Yeah. I wonder about the research around that, like what the evidence says in terms of how it does affect communities. Cause I feel like reading this book, the sense I got was that it would have been helpful for the community to be able to put that tribute out. And that was something that, you know, Regina desired, that Danny desired and that other students really wanted to do as part of, I suppose, their, their grieving process. So I can see both sides of it. It's really tricky. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the book, Regina said that talking about suicide doesn't mean that you glorify it. And that's accurate. That's very true. Yeah, you don't want to go to the extreme where it's a completely shameful thing that you never mention again. But there, I suppose there has to be guidelines around how you can talk about it in public. Because I suppose something like the school newspaper you never know who might be triggered by that. Yeah. yeah, talking about suicide doesn't increase rates of suicide. Um, if people are feeling suicidal, they're already experiencing those thoughts regardless of mm-hmm. whether someone brings it up. It doesn't put the idea in someone's mind. There's, there has to be some guidelines between what is safe communication and what could start to lead to harm. I think doing it secretly is a problem because that means that maybe someone who can apply that that lens to it wouldn't be able to have a look at it first. Yeah, I think more of a conversation should have been happening. My only sort of general thought was that I thought it was quite unique how the book looked at the relationship between the school community and Sandra's death. Daniel has a history with Sandra, but he has that kind of wider perspective, and that's why he focuses so much on how the community responds. Um, so yeah, that was quite powerful for um, bringing up all these issues. And uh, again, specifically the community here is Asian dominant. There are all these questions about like the pressures that um, kids might face, and like from an outsider perspective, that might be something that like any community might be demonized for but um the author actually writing with a lot of empathy for all the teenagers so that's something i appreciated i just wanted to read out a quote from danny about the school's response that i thought was really powerful so he said here's the thing when someone at your school dies by suicide it consumes you not just you as an individual but corporately the whole campus theories swirl and everyone looks for a reason for something or someone to pin the unthinkable to was she bullied too stressed out was she abused Parents start to flood school board meetings and teachers panic, pulling you aside to ask if you're all right every time you're quiet or tired in class. The administration calls in experts and you take anonymous surveys about whether you've ever been depressed and psychologists come talk to your second period advisory classes about calls for help and about healthy ways to deal with stress and they don't let you all wear her favourite colour on the same day or dedicate anything to her. You aren't allowed to post pictures or notes on the person's locker or have any kind of memorial service, and the family's funeral is private, and the places you once believed were safe, your school, your world, feel hostile and fragile and uncertain. And there was also a quote from a little bit later on where he says, at the first of those assemblies we all had to go to eight days after she died, a psychologist told us that the vast majority of people who survive attempting suicide regret those attempts and almost immediately and are thankful they survived. And then Danny goes on to reflect that if this was something that could have been prevented, what does it say about us that we couldn't prevent it too? Yeah, I remember that was brought up specifically with Regina as well, that the psychologist has said that depression or suicidal thoughts are treatable illness. And that actually made it worse for Regina because then, you know, why couldn't we help her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going back to Wendy's point about how parents or even specifically Asian parents get demonized for 
having high expectations or putting a lot of pressures on their children to uh, excel academically. We actually don't know the other factors that might go into why Sandra made that decision. All we get really are these little comments about how her parents are horrible and Danny once saw her mother slap her in the car. Mm. So, you know, it might be above and beyond high expectations. We don't know if there's domestic violence of any kind going on as well. And it's not fair um, to expect her friends to know all that. Again, particularly if mental health is not something that gets talked about anyway in the community. Yeah, and I think when we see all these conversations the friends are having and how Regina has like one perspective and one drive when she's wanting to do the tribute. And then I think Harry said he's like not sure if this is a good idea, but he kind of wants her to have it. Um, the author's like not trying to give you one direct answer. She's showing all the different responses they can have. So that felt very real to yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Bethany Finger, the host of Prince Kai Thampod, a Marissa Meyer book club podcast. Join me every week during my read-along journey through all of the books by author Marissa Meyer, one chapter at a time, spoiler-free. Each episode will feature a different guest, new fan art, and laughter and joy through reading. You can find Prince Kai Thampod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other listening platforms. And now, back to the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So a lot of this is stuff that's sort of happening um, based on previous experiences or things that happened before the story starts. But a, a really important thing then happens in the story. So Danny's father suddenly loses his job. And this has a lot of consequences for the family. So first of all, his father starts to experience another episode of depression. He's looking for cash in hand jobs too, which confuses Danny as, you know, this he's an he's an academic. He he was working at a university in the physics department and is suddenly looking for cash in hand jobs. And the family start to sink into poverty. And eventually the family are forced to move into a tiny one-bedroom apartment out of town, telling Danny that he must move schools. Danny, all along this process, is frustrated, angry, and powerless. His parents are making decisions without consulting him and refusing to explain why a lot of this is going on. So why they won't accept help from others or seek a loan. And it causes a huge amount of tension between Danny and his parents. And I felt Danny's frustration very vividly. Yeah, I just, it's, it's a testament to 
Kelly Lloyd Gilbert's writing, I feel like how vividly the frustration and the helplessness come pouring out of the pages at this stage and that tension of, uh, or rather the spiral of the family, you know, is just sinking further and further into poverty and his mom's anxiety about not being able to afford things and just the increasing mystery and helplessness I feel in the family. It's, it's so good. It's like, um, you know, you're right. It's very frustrating to be in that mindset where we don't know anything, but I, as a reader, I love that I get to feel that way and I'm not criticizing Danny or his parents at that stage. I'm just feeling what Danny's feeling. That is especially apparent for me during the Christmas scene. It's this, you know, collision about his mom's panic about the reduced circumstances. She has to serve her guest chicken. Oh my God, that's so unacceptable in Christmas time. Um, his father's unable to, um, for lack of a better word, perform, I suppose, in front of their friends. Um, and Danny just feels like he can't do anything about what's going on. It just all comes together so beautifully. Beautiful in the writing, not beautiful in the moment, I suppose. Um, and as an aside, I thought it was funny that his mom was like, we're not going to have enough food. I told everyone not to bring food. And Danny's like, they're Asians. They're going to bring food. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, yep. And of course they do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could also really understand his parents' perspective. And um, we also know from like early on in the book, they're very overprotective of him. And um, they're always worried for his safety. Danny refuses to go to the new school and makes a long commute to his old school. Um, however, things get bad after the tribute is published in the school newspaper and he and Regina get in trouble with the principal and his parents find out that he has been secretly going to his old school. And then during an argument when Danny is driving, he crashes their car and injures his mother. And Danny feels really guilty, especially since for at least a moment, the crash was intentional. The slow motion scene of this crash happening was really absorbing but also really awful to read for me yeah and he said that for a moment he meant for himself to be injured which yeah yeah because i think he was like an awful thing yeah, like i think he was saying he wanted his parents to feel sorry for what they've done in that moment he was thinking that if he hurt himself then they would feel that hurt and regret but of course mm. you can't control something like that and he ended up hurting his mother instead. Yeah, and Danny wasn't thinking from a rational mind either. You know, like I don't want to excuse what happened, but yeah. it wasn't like it was a well-thought-out plan. It was just very much an impulse. I think all of that rage and frustration, like everything had kind of been building up throughout the story, and then you get this moment, mm -hmm. and he just his thinking brain goes offline, and this happens. Yeah. And he has to deal with the consequences and the guilt that comes from that. Yeah. It's important to note that his parents don't know that there was that moment where it, there was that intention and they don't blame him for this, but they they are just feeling, you know, guilty on their part as well for taking away opportunities and so on for their son when a lot of their decisions yeah. have been to try to, you know, make a good life for their family and for Danny. Yeah. And it's also worth noting that they never discuss it again. They don't talk about what happened leading up to the car crash. Um, I think they didn't speak about the car crash for a while as well. 
Maybe it's a cultural thing because I feel like my parents didn't discuss their feelings with me when I was growing up. But it makes sense to me almost that it just got swept under the rug, and there was no conversation around how angry they were at each other about anything that happened. You know, they didn't discuss Danny not going to his new school or the newspaper mm. or even the car crash. At least for some time, mm. everyone was on eggshells. For a little while, yeah, yeah, mm. and I feel like if you don't, if you don't usually talk about your emotions anyway, you're not going to talk about mental health issues. Definitely mm. not. Yeah. While all of this is going on, Danny investigates the mystery of Clay Ballard, discovering that his sister is alive after all. So when his parents immigrated to America, they left their baby daughter behind with her grandfather, planning to retrieve her after they had established themselves in the U.S. She was abducted by a neighbor after her grandfather's sudden death and sold to an international adoption agency. Danny's father traced her to California and the Ballards, who had adopted her. Danny's parents tried to confront the family. Emotions ran high and things did not go well. Danny's father assaulted Clay and their daughter did not seem to recognize them. Um, the assault charges prevented Danny's parents from obtaining citizenship, meaning that they are undocumented and they have lived in fear of exposure ever since. We also learned that they made the decision to treat their daughter as good as dead, basically, and to focus on protecting Danny and giving him the life that they want him to have. I have a lot of feelings about this. <laughs> Many feelings. Just, yeah. It's just, it's such a, I don't know, to outsiders, that choice of leaving your baby behind must seem, like it might seem quite heartless, but a lot of parents do make these choices. I don't think it's one that anyone ever makes lightly. And to have all this happen, it's just so awful. Yeah, so this is a different context, but in mainland China, like I see in the news and so on, stories about how rural communities um, are affected when the parents move to the city for work far away, and then the grandparents bring up the children, and this can be a struggle for the family. So I don't know if the author was directly drawing upon this, but it's an interesting kind of parallel mm-hmm. in terms of like making sacrifices for your children, but it can also have an impact on them. And when talking about this decision, Danny thinks about how, like, um, the courts in the US and so on would not really understand um, one of the choices the parents made and um, the whole difference in privilege with the ballots being white and affluent compared to how powerless his parents become. And yeah, I've just never seen a YA novel about like child and human trafficking before. And in the storyline, it was interwoven really well with like um, everything else that was going on yeah. in his family. And those sections of the story that were told from like the second I think it's second second person perspective, but it's it's mm. Joy's perspective. So it's like, you know, you feel this, you see this, you experience this. I thought those were a really powerful way to sort of learn more about what was happening to Joy and to, to get a sense mm. of what happened behind the scenes. And the scene where she gets abducted, I, I was reading that like with my mouth open, just like, oh, my God. <laughs> so this is yeah. what happened because, you know, I was <laughs> – as I'm sure a lot of readers did, assuming the very worst possible scenario that could come from that. And don't get me wrong, that was a bad scenario, but I'm like, what is this mm-hmm. neighbour doing? What what are his intentions? What is he going to do with this, this toddler? The mystery element, yeah. I thought, was 
handled very well for her storyline. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Mm, Absolutely. And I think on one hand, there's that whole privilege playing into this conflict as well. But we don't know how much the Ballard knows about the circumstances of the abduction and the adoption. And we don't know what they knew about Danny's parents coming. Yeah, it's really tragic. It sounds like they, they'd assumed as well that the adoption was completely legal too. Like they didn't know that Joy mm. was coming from, you know, that Joy was a stolen child essentially. Mm. In in any case, Danny eventually tracks down his sister. So with Harry's help, he plans to meet his sister and perhaps reunite his family. So they drive for many hours and eventually find Joy's workplace. And during an emotional meeting, Joy expresses anger towards their parents with whom she's declined previous opportunities to reconnect. And now in her 20s, she still refuses to include them in her life. Throughout this encounter, she's quite polite to Danny and Harry, but clearly very surprised as, you know, they they didn't contact her before they had this meeting. So this was a complete, you know, yeah. dropped on her, um, just a normal work day. And then suddenly my brother, who I've never met before, arrives. Um, mm. Yeah, but you know, obviously quite anxious and shocked to see them. Yeah, at one stage, Danny saw her breathing into her cupped hands, clearly having a panic attack. Um, interesting that she's experiencing that considering we've seen Danny's mom having a lot of panic attacks throughout the book as well. Yeah. And he- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it did it did make me wonder if maybe there what the author was um trying to hint at here was a bit of a genetic link between panic attacks. But it absolutely could be environmental factors as well that might contribute to a person experiencing panic attacks or a combination of both too. And also just, oh, Danny, this is a terrible decision, really. <laughs> you know, just do not drop in on your long lost sister with this news. <laughs> Maybe try to contact her first, at least to get a sense of if she yeah. can consent to this or not. Uh, yeah. Oh, I think we didn't mention, so she was the one who bought the portrait that he did of the yeah. mother, right? Oh, that's right. So, yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. So we know, like as the readers, we know that Joy probably has some inkling of Danny's existence, but we don't get any of that. Well, we get a little bit of that when he meets her, but she's not very forthcoming about what she knows of her birth family at that stage. Also, can I... I also just want to mention that Harry drove Danny for eight hours there and eight hours back. And I was like, obviously he loves you. (laughs) Who does this for a friend? (laughs) I mean, I would do it for my best friend, but you know. It's a pretty big commitment. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I don't think I've ever been driven anywhere for eight hours. Actually, no, that's a lie. There were definitely more breaks than what happened here. Yeah. Yeah. Danny then comes to term with the possible consequences of his family being undocumented, including the realities of his parents being deported and forced into camps with inhuman conditions. I think I like that that was included because I think the common assumption is that if you're found out that you're undocumented, you just get deported. And Danny initially was I think he was saying, oh, that's okay. It's not like they don't know China or they've never lived there. And then Regina was the one who said, no, actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. And it can be a lot more terrible. 
Danny also decides to decline his scholarship at RISD and to support his family instead. He tells his parents this, um, but in desperation to protect their son's future, Danny's parents leave in the middle of the night while he's sleeping. They leave him some money and they go on the lamb, promising to contact him eventually. It's <laughs> I did not expect that to happen at all. Yeah, that was really heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, I, there was a part of me that really hoped that by the end of the book, that would all be resolved. Like somehow, like it was getting, you know, that thing where you get really far into a book, like 95% done and there's so many threads that haven't been wrapped up and you're like, oh, yeah. so this was the thread for me where I'm like, how, you know, there's only, I don't know, 20 pages left. How are they going to resolve the issue of his parents and money and jobs and potentially being wanted by authorities and all this kind of thing. And it turns out it doesn't get wrapped up, but his parents make that sacrifice and, oh, yeah. Um, it's, oh I was like, I think I, when I read it, I was like, <gasps> no, like, out loud to myself. And I'm like, why? <laughs> I was not okay. <laughs> yeah, it brings up themes of, themes of like loyalty as well. But this is a very extreme situation, which makes this hit home very, very hard. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Again, it's that sacrifice, you know, you should have the future that you want you know just before we find out that danny's parents have decided to leave his mom came in to his room and was like is there anything we can say or do to convince you to change your mind and he said no and then she started crying and said you know we're really proud of you you're a great son and i was like oh my god (laughs) oh yeah i have not recovered clearly (laughs) So yeah, the last chapter is back to that second perspective um, from Joy. And then we found out that Danny leaves for RISD with Harry, who he eventually discovers reciprocates his feelings. And although accepted at Princeton, Harry attends Brown to be near Danny. And right at the end of the book, we learn that Joy has reconnected with Danny and that maybe they will be able to have some kind of relationship, even if she's not ready to invite her biological parents into her life just yet. Yeah, and we get a bit of a summary of the years between Joy's adoption and present day. She has a complicated relationship with her origins. We get the story about how she managed to track down Danny and her dad. And he actually told her to go to go away, basically. Um, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said, you know, you have your own life we better just get on with our separate lives you have a new family now you must go back to them it's not safe for you to be here and go and then after that it says um joy has nurtured her hatred ever since yeah and i didn't realize this until you told me wendy when we met that joy's quote reunion with her father coincided with her father's bout of depression at the start that made a lot of sense because then the depression didn't just come out of nowhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a very bittersweet ending, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's And even more so because, you know, Joy was saying, oh, I told Danny to be careful with his internet privacy, but here he is posting <laughs> all of his achievements for the world to see. I don't know why he's doing this. And we know that it's because he wants to show his parents what he, how he's doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another line from Joy. Your brother had the unmistakable air 
of some of one who's been the very center of someone else's universe or his life. One formed of all those hopes and dreams and fears and pains and longings and regrets. So that kind of just captures the um, parents' relationship with him again, that yeah. he was like the center of their world. They made sacrifices for him, were trying to protect yeah. him. And yeah, we see it from Joy's perspective, which is quite interesting. Yeah. Since reading that, I've wondered, what is that air of being in the center of someone's universe? I mean, it's such a lovely line that, yeah, it was just a random thought. I was like, what does that look like? That you just seem content with your life, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, well, does that wrap up our main review and recap? Yes, mm-hmm. I believe so. That brings us to our favorite moments of the book. All right, Elise, would you like to tell us what your favorite moments are? So there were so many beautiful moments in this book. It was hard to narrow down to favorites, but... Some of my favorites were the really sweet moments between Danny and his parents, such as right at the start of the book when his dad finds out that he got into RISD and also the moment where his mother sees his gallery display I thought was really lovely too. And maybe I'm just a sucker for like happy parent-child relationships in books. But, yeah, I I really enjoyed those. I also wanted to give a shout-out to the ending and the final chapter from Joy's perspective which I thought was very powerful. Yeah. Priscilla, what about you? I love the moment Danny managed to draw Sandra. He managed to get past that block to finally capture Sandra in the way that he felt was respectful of her memories and capture the essence of her personality. I also wanted to highlight the the scene where the, the classmates gathered after they found out about Sandra's suicide. It was not fun to read, but it was powerful. And I loved how the author portrayed all the different feelings that could come up after something like that. What about you, Wendy? What are your favorite moments? Um, Yeah, that scene where Daniel finally manages to draw Sandra was actually one of my favorites as well. And specifically those passages where he was like having this very existential reflection. Um, He talked about how like, oh, when someone dies, it really leaves an impact on those who are left behind. But also that everyone goes through moments of feeling hopeless about life, which is an interesting response. And yeah, trying to just like survive in spite of it. And then he also talks about like art helping him make feel less alone. Um, and yeah, those existential aspects of being like um, surviving and being hopeful, I think, is what the whole book is trying to say. So, what would be your star rating, Wendy? Um, yeah, I'll give it five stars because, as I said, when I first read it, I was like, okay, where was this book when I was a teenager? <laughs> yeah. Because it's just very, like, empathetic and very um, validating. And um, it has all that nuance with dealing, like, inter- with intersectionality. Um, yeah, just the things with, like, his parents being overprotective but also making sacrifices mm-hmm. um, definitely hit home for me. Yeah. Um, and just, yeah, all the characters felt very real. Yeah, beautiful. I would also give it a five stars. This is one of those books where I haven't written in a long time, but as someone who enjoys writing, while I was reading, I was like, oh, I would love to write this well. I would love to be able to tap straight into these emotions in every scene and get the characters to come alive like this. You know, I might have disliked some of their choices, but I could see, if not immediately, then at least by the end, uh, why those choices were made. I agree that the representations of mental health, particularly in relation with culture as well, is quite well done. 
especially the intergenerational trauma and the lingering effects of grief. My only criticism was that I felt there was one point where the mysteries were introduced too quickly one after the other. And as I mentioned before, for a moment, I thought I missed something. Um, But that's really outweighed by the emotional investment that I had in the story. So I'm still giving it a five star. (laughs) Okay, what about you, Elise? I gave this one 4.5. So, yeah, not quite a five stars for me. It's still really, really high. (laughs) So I thought this was a beautifully written, lyrical and touching story with a bittersweet ending. So many interweaving elements and dark themes that were handled really sensitively and thoughtfully. Mental health rep I thought was handled very well, even though a lot of this is secondhand. So Danny talking about other people and what they're going through. Um, I feel like we still got a good sense of what might be going on in those other characters' minds, what led to their experiences and their behaviours. So uh, in terms of my criticisms, they were very minor overall. I only knocked off a 0.5 star. Um, That sense of frustration at times was obviously intentional from the author, um, but it was very hard, I think, to read um, Danny's experience with him feeling so powerless and so helpless with a lot of the story. I don't know if that could have been handled better. Maybe if we'd learnt more about the mystery earlier in the story, um, it would have led to Danny having a little bit less of a passive role for much of the story. But that that's very much just a personal thing and potentially me projecting a bit based on my own experiences too. And I was a bit confused at times about the order of events and what was or wasn't a flashback. So, yeah, really good. I'm glad yeah. I, I'm glad we got to read it and cover it for this story. Yeah, agreed. Great. Now that we have finished our recap and review, we will briefly talk about resources. The resources we'll link to include information about supporting parents who might be experiencing mental health issues, coping with grief after a person you know dies by suicide, and the resource that Priscilla mentioned earlier about managing trauma, so that resource that's designed for schools. And we also will include some recommendations for other fiction so yeah the first book i'd recommend if you're looking for something similar is um kelly Lloyd gilbert's latest YA novel when we were infinite that book centers on loyalty and love in terms of friendship and yeah the main character struggles a lot with her self-worth and fear of losing others which was interesting to read about another one i recommend which is um quite different in terms of storyline is Patron Saints of Nothing by Randy Rebuy, who's a Filipino-American author. So yeah, it's a very different premise. It's about a Filipino-American teenager trying to uncover the truth of his cousin's death and to understand the drug war in the Philippines. He also grapples with diasporic experiences. And in terms of writing styles, since yeah, both of you mentioned liking the writing style too, it has that kind of powerful lyrical writing style whilst still feeling like an authentic teenage voice final one it's a bit of a backlist mm. book something in between by melissa de la cruz um it's a filipina american teenager who also grapples with being the child of immigrants and how her world is turned upside down where she discovers that none of the things she imagined for her future are possible because her family has been undocumented for years yeah wonderful my one recommendation is by an australian author will kostakis and One of his books is called The Sidekicks, and it is about three teenage boys coping with the death of a mutual friend. Some of the themes are similar. Great. In our blog post, we'll also include voices from lived experience. So in this case, I think 
some stories of um, transracial adoptees might be a good one for us to include. So I will link to an article in The Guardian by Nicole Chung. There's also, this one is probably more well-known because it was also made into a movie that may or may not have won the Oscars. I can't remember if it won, but it definitely was nominated. The book is called Lion, A Long Way Home, and it's written by Saru Briarly. So if you haven't heard of it, Saru, um, through quite tragic circumstances, came to be adopted by a white family in Australia. He's himself an Indian child. And the book talks about his journey to finding um, his birth parents or his birth mother as well. I think that wraps us up for today. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Wendy, is there anything that you want to plug? So you can find me on Twitter at Written in Wonder. And then my blog is written in wondersite.wordpress.com. And yeah, if you'd like to check out this celebration, we actually did an interview with Kelly Lloyd Gilbert about her latest book. So yeah, that might be something interesting to check out next. Yeah, and, and Lit Celebration is on Twitter and Instagram, is that right? Yeah, amazing. Yeah, but at Lit Celebration. For all of the resources we mentioned in this episode, check out our website, novelfeelings.com. We post an episode summary and links to further reading for each episode, as well as information about getting support for yourself or somebody that you care about. If you like us, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to ask us a question or to chat, you can send us a message via our website or contact us on social media. So at the moment, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Goodreads at novel underscore feelings. You can also find my bookstagram at pay with books with an extra S. Thank you so much again, Wendy, for joining us. We've loved having this conversation with you. Oh, I'm so glad you two enjoyed it. And yeah, thank you for having me. Like I said, it's so exciting to talk about with full spoilers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to talk about this book without spoiling it, I think. There's, there's something freeing in being able to talk about spoilers. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And remember to tune in next time. Take care. Bye. See ya.